Wow, does New Hope have good worship or what? That's cool. As good as they are, I look forward to the day when I can stand in eternity and hear Jesus sing. Now there's a thought. Remember when the disciples gathered together? It says in Matthew that they gathered together in the upper room after the Last Supper and before leaving they sang a hymn. So the disciples got to sing with Jesus then. We get to do it eventually. Would God not give us music if he wouldn't participate in it himself? That's an interesting thought. We get to hear the Savior sing one day. Well, would you take a minute and pray with me as we step into the text? Oh God, I can't imagine what your voice is like. As your people, we come before you ready to hear from your text, from the things that you had written down thousands of years ago. But you meant them specifically for our day and age. And so we believe your Holy Spirit is alive and active and working here. Your word, you said, is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We're confident, God, that it can pierce deeper than any scalpel. It divides the heart and the soul. So, Father, we ask that your work would be done here this morning. We thank you for what's taking place downstairs right now with the children's classes and adult classes, people who are learning and being discipled. We thank you for the worship we just participated in. Oh God, right now, we just ask you to help us to set aside whatever cares we've brought into the room with us whatever things we have to do later on, just to grant us this period of time in which we can focus on you and your goodness. Speak through your word, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. A couple weeks ago, I was looking online at uh, Fox News and saw this headline come across, which really caught my attention. Um, The headline said, Astonishing Photos of Lost Tribe. I wanted you to see this image, so they're going to put that up on the screen for us. A little faded in here from the sunlight, but if you look in the very center, you see a group of five, one, two, three, four, five individuals discovered on the border of Brazil and Peru recently. This group of people has never previously been exposed to the outside world. Can you imagine that in 2011? Never have exposure to any of the things that you know. As far as they know, the rest of the world is living like the Flintstones. As far as they knew, they were the world. Until this helicopter comes over top. If you look in the center, you can Google it later and look on Fox Online. Just Google astonishing photos. You see the the biggest guy in the center has got his bow pulled back like this. (laughs) He's going to shoot down a helicopter with the arrow. And, And the younger one next to him has got his spear held back. But they could see very closely by the baskets that they've got papaya and mango and They're growing these different things from their garden. They don't know our world. I thought to myself, if I was placed in that situation, if someone decided to send Mark to that lost tribe group, what would I do? I'd for sure pick up my cell phone and dial up Rich and Ray Bruce real quick. Say, okay, help! Because Rich and Ray have been missionaries to the jungle areas and they know what life is like there. 
probably call Chris and Amanda McMasters for a quick crash course. They're, they're teachers at New, Bibles, New Tribes Bible Institute. How do you speak to this group of people who know nothing about the things that we know? There's a great parallel between what's going on right there and what happened to Titus when he got set down on that island called Crete that we've been studying. A world which was oblivious to the things of Christ. And here's young pastor Titus, 30-something-year-old guy, in the midst of this barbarian activity, pagans to the core. Remarkable situation because we've got this tremendous contrast in our day and age in which you and I live on this island home called earth, yet we're citizens of heaven. Our total destiny, our earthly time here is limited. Ultimately, we'll be in heaven with Christ. So Scripture says that while we're citizens of earth, we are also citizens of heaven. We belong in two different spheres, two different living environments. So we're supposed to be in this world, but not of this world. We're supposed to be influencing people that we live among, but not so focused on it that we're absorbed with it. Jesus was very aware of this situation. As a matter of fact, he spoke to this for your sake, specifically to this situation in which we live among people who are antagonistic against God. Let me show you this. It comes from John 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. It's speaking of people like in that tribe. If you're part of that tribe, you're in. They're going to love you. If you're not of that tribe, they're not going to accept you so well. So that's what he says in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. You stand for the things of God. You take a position to follow the text that God gave us. The world will be antagonistic towards you. No doubt about it. This earthly island home that we live on, like Titus living on Crete, fundamentally is opposed to God. So how do we advance the kingdom, church? Jesus gave us that mandate. We are to advance the kingdom. How do you advance the kingdom in a world in which you've got people who are hostile? The church really does face a fight. But I believe the church has faced the fight, especially in recent years, in the wrong way. I see the church more and more, especially in our social world, picking up swords of steel as opposed to swords of the Spirit, becoming antagonistic against society when Scripture says you're not supposed to be antagonistic. What the world needs to see is someone who has hope because that's how they're transformed. So for the world to be transformed, they have to see someone who has hope where there was no hope. They've got to be shown someone. That's you. You've got the hope. So let's step back mentally that period of time on the island of Crete. We've got Titus, this young guy who's received this letter from Paul. Paul mailed it to him, put it on a ship, sent it across the Mediterranean Ocean. He'd been there several months already, and then this letter arrives probably written on papyrus for all we know. No doubt it took Paul a long time to write it. And he begins giving him these instructions that you've been seeing over the last few weeks. This is our last week in this study. Today and this week coming up, next Sunday, ends the study of Titus. And eventually we're stepping into the book of John. I'm really looking forward to that. been preparing for that for a while, the Gospel of John. But as we step back into this period of time, we see that this island is made up of individuals who are very much like the individuals you live among today. 
you live in this region, the metro area of Lansing, and you can pick out individuals who represent what this island life was like. This was a soldier training base, so they sent Rome sent its soldiers down there to be trained. This is a, 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 a port for sailing vessels to come in and unload their cargo. So you got the military guys partying, you got the sailors coming in and partying, you got the island dwellers, and life is a party. They're having a good time there. And this guy Titus is here trying to fix things. And they're no doubt antagonistic. So Paul wrote these things that when they're antagonistic against you, this is what you're supposed to look like. Your world that you live in today is just as pagan, I believe, as the world that Titus encountered on this island of Crete. The behavior is very, very similar. Yet, we're still supposed to impact society. We're supposed to be advancing the kingdom. We got a prime directive from our commander-in-chief. The Lord Jesus Christ gave us a directive and said, this is what you're supposed to be about. Look with me on the screen. Matthew 28. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's all of us. We're supposed to be doing this. Disciples is mathetes, a pupil, a student. Make students of Jesus Christ. Make learners baptize them, teach them all that I commanded you. Train them up. That's why those adult classes are going on downstairs, to make mathetes, to make disciples, those who know more about Christ. And as a result, we proclaim the gospel. That's the way Jesus said we get to change lives. We get to change lives internally for eternity. That's the way it's supposed to be fought. So our battle that we have is a spiritual battle, not a battle against society. That gives us too much of a focus on things of this world, but rather a battle against spiritual ideologies, human ideologies, things that have set the human mind against God. That's the way it's stated for us in 2 Corinthians 10. Look with me on the screen. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So would you say that we live in the midst of people who need Jesus? No, you don't sound convinced. Do we live among people who need Jesus? Absolutely, just like the people on the island of Crete. And therein lies a danger. Because we know that, we understand that the light has not shined on everyone yet. They haven't got it. And we have this task. There is a temptation. And the temptation is to feel superior, to believe that we've got it all together, they don't, and we start becoming antagonistic against society. You notice why um, some, one individual this week wrote to me that the book of Titus has been kind of prickly for them because there's points to it that hurt. Definitely, this is prickly, prickly stuff. But God gave it to us to help us understand that we're not supposed to feel like we've got it all together because Titus chapter 3 is a huge reminder for us of what we once were like before we knew Christ. So look with me at Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. That's what we're going to pick up this morning. We're going to do eight verses, and then next week we're going to wrap it up. 
This is the way Titus chapter 3 and verse 1 starts off. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Remind is hypomonesco, and it literally means this. Literally, press it upon their conscience, Titus. Press it upon them. Remind them constantly that they are to be in submission to authority. Apparently, Paul had already taught them this. And he's saying, let's go back again. Remind them of this. I want to remind them of what I talked to them about. Who's the them? The them is the church. It's us. To remind the church we're to be in subjection to rulers and authorities. Yes, indeed, the voluntary subjection to the President of the United States all the way down to those who rule over civil government in the local realm. Police force, fire department, local mayors. God places rulers in authority. God removes rulers from authority. He ordains it. It's a chain of command that he's structured. So we're to be in subjection. And this word that's used here is a voluntary submission. It's not forced, I'm going to put my boot on you and stuff you down. It's voluntary, submitting the heart. Hypotasso is the word that's used. And it means to rank under. This is the way it's described in Romans 13.1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. This was especially important on the island of Crete because these guys were turbulent people. As a matter of fact, some of the historians actually said that they're insurrectionist murderers and warmongers. These were people who were violent, and they were not in subjection to authority. So here comes Titus establishing this church, saying, you guys, if you're going to be a fragrance of Christ, you can't behave that way. We're in subjection to the king who placed these authorities in power. And you think about who's in power at this time. Nero. Caesar, Nero is ruling over. He wasn't an elected leader. He's a dictator. And that's who they're being told to submit to. So this is a willing obedience to human authority, and it demonstrates something to the world watching. It demonstrates that the power of Christ is at work in your life because you've been transformed. You're no longer behaving like the rest of the world. You're in submission. Do you know that Jesus did not suggest that tax taxation of people was fair at all. He never suggested that, but he complied to human government. I'm going to show you an example of how Jesus submitted to the authority that was placed by God. Look with me up on the screen. It's a fairly long passage, but this comes at a period of time in Matthew in which the Pharisees were trying to take out Jesus near the very end of his life. They wanted to destroy him. They were looking for ways to do it. And that's where we pick this up. Matthew 22:15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, and look at how they pasted on here, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth. And defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Hypocrisy really stinks, you know what? And you can smell it right there. Verse 18, But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, 
Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to, th- to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Understand, the Roman government was thoroughly pagan. You think you live in a pagan society? You should study the life of Nero and see what this individual is like. He had behaviors you would not want to repeat. Even, well, we'll leave it there. Just bad, bad guy, okay? So this guy's in power. Jesus knows that the tax dollars that are going to be collected go to that governor, that Roman government. And yet he says, render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. And to God, get your attention right. To God, the things that are God's. Focus. This world, this world. Two different worlds. Yes, you're here. Pay your tax. Bigger picture, God, the things that are God's. So our obligation does not rest on the government being just or righteous. Our obligation is because God ordained it. It means he put it in control and he regulates society through the governments he's put in place. So he uses this word, be obedient. You know, the only exception I find in Scripture in which the church is not required to be obedient to the governing authorities that are over you is when the governing authorities require you to refute what God has called you to do. I can give you an example of that. Paul is preaching in the temple. The governing authorities came to him. I'm sorry, Peter was. Peter's preaching in the temple. Governing authorities come to him. They bring the guards with him and said, don't you preach anymore or mention the name of Jesus Christ. In the midst of that setting in which the rulers came to him and said, stop teaching people about Jesus. This is his response, Acts 4.20. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. So God calls you to do it. You better do it. But that's the only instance. Now the problem we run into in society is people say, well, God's part of all this thing, all this rebellion. Make sure it's really based on Scripture, that you're speaking about Christ. That's what we're talking about here. So it says to be ready for every good deed. This is a really sincere eagerness to jump in with both feet so that new hope is represented as being consistently aggressive for advancing the kingdom. So be ready to do every good deed. Verse 2, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men maligning no one, even those who assault the biblical truth. Why would you not want to assault people who assault biblical truth? Because Scripture says, do not curse them. Pray for your enemy. Blasphemeo is the word that's used here when it says malign. Do not treat them with contempt. I'm going to tell you how this played out in my own life in the last three months. I was really feeling a sense of conviction about some of the radio talk shows that I've been listening to because some of the radio talk show hosts were maligning, were speaking blasphemous against the leaders of our government. And for me personally, I have a hard time praying for the leaders of government when my mind is filled with all those thoughts about how rotten and corrupt and crooked they are. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have an opinion, but I was feeding my mind with what radio talk show hosts were saying And then it caused me to think, 
I really start to feel antagonistic. I can't do this anymore. I've got to stop. So there's the conviction there that this blasphemeo, this slandering of someone's reputation was taking place. So I had to step away from it. Rather, it says, be peaceable, gentle, with consideration for all men. In the Greek language, sometimes there's not positive words. All they have is a negative word. So when it says peaceable, in the Greek, all it means really is to be a non-fighter. Don't be someone who dukes it out with others. This is the word for it, amicus. Peaceable means to be not a brawler. You don't want to see believers walking around slugging people. So he's saying, hold back, man. I know you guys are prone to this kind of behavior, but hold back. You don't want to be duking it out. You want to be peaceable. Refuse to engage in quarrels. Don't lower yourself. So it says to be gentle, which means sweet reasonableness. Sweetly reasonable. You don't hold any grudges. Romans 12, 18 says it this way. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You notice that first part where it says, if possible? Okay? That's a tough one, isn't it? Because there's some people who are just really antagonistic, and they're mean. And they're mean towards the things of Christ. And you don't want to be at peace with them. So you're better just to separate yourself. Unless you have an opportunity to bring them into the kingdom. But if possible, separate yourself from them. If possible, be at peace. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, this for all, this phrase right there, really broadens it beyond the rulers. It's talking about all people. There's no exaggeration here. He's talking about all of humanity, every human being. Give them consideration. That's the word that's used. I want you to understand this word consideration that's used really requires some inner grace and some strength of character. The word that's used, I want to give you a specific definition for it, but first I'm going to show you how it's used of Jesus. Look with me on the screen at 1 Peter 2, 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus was practicing proutes. The word is, is consideration, and it means meekness. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of a meek man or a meek woman. You may not have a proper definition for it. Look with me on the screen. Proutes, mildness, by implication, humility, meekness. It was always used in one context by the Romans and by the Greeks, always of training horses. In this context, taking wild stallions, bringing them into a society environment in which the horse had to be broken by putting a bridle, a rein, a bit in the mouth and controlling them. A horse that was prowess had strength and power. Muscles didn't go away. Still a powerful creature. But his attitude was under control. So prowutase that's used here, consideration, means that the fruit of the Spirit is just leaking out of people. This fruit of the Spirit called meekness. It's power under control. Moses was called the meekest man in all the earth. Yet did he not flare up with anger at times? He had his anger under control for the most part. He was a prowutase individual. Meekness means power 
under control. So a self-controlled individual is controlled that way because he's God-controlled. That's what Scripture is pointing us to. Is it right to hate sin? Absolutely. You're not supposed to push away all those feelings in which you, don't, you deny your human nature. You've got to hate sin. When you see it, God put the Holy Spirit within you. You recognize sin. You're, you hate it because it undermines the very fiber of our society. But we have no right, church, to become hostile towards unbelievers who act like unbelievers. They don't know any different. That's the way they behave because that's their human nature. It's what's deep within them. So we have no right to be hostile towards unbelievers when they act like unbelievers. So Paul takes this one step further. He said, these are the reasons for these motives. Look with me at verse 3. For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You see why that individual said Titus is kind of prickly? Because it takes us right back and reminds us, man, we're staring right in the mirror. There's a strong motive for our conforming our lives, our own past. He says, look at the way you were. What was true of us once is a daily reminder for us of what our unsaved friends, our neighbors, our coworkers are living with every day. They're living with the lack of light being shine on their, shown on their life. So Paul's saying literally about himself, in retrospect, I was that way. I want you to see the word that he uses. Anotos, anotos, unintelligent, by implication, sensual, foolish, or unwise. That's the word that's used when he speaks about foolish in verse 3. Now, he's not saying uneducated. Paul was highly educated himself. Academically, he was at the top of the ladder. You couldn't go any higher than what Paul achieved. But he writes, I was anotos. I was foolish because the light of Christ had not shone on me yet. I was living in spiritual darkness. Without spiritual understanding, there's a lack of discernment. This is the way it's used in Ephesians 4.18. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. It's ugly, church. When you look at those descriptions, we were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts. That's really ugly. That's the human nature. So when you see people without Christ, they're not enlightened. They don't understand, and so they're in disobedience against the things of God. So the result, look at what it produces. You're enslaved to various lusts. That's what he says next. So inevitably, if you're enslaved to lust, you're going to pursue something, and you're going to pursue it hotly, and eventually you're going to catch it. And when you catch it, it consumes you, and unchecked, it becomes repulsive and disgusting. And eventually it leads to hate, being hateful, and hating one another. That's the way he ended that. So clearly religion can't save you from this kind of behavior because Paul was very religious, was he not? I mean, he, he achieved great standing among those whom he ran with. They were all very religious. But religion couldn't save him. It was only the work of Jesus Christ and that alone. So that's where that tendency, tendency comes to become Pharisaic, to become like a Pharisee looking down your nose towards individuals who have not achieved that status yet. That's why Paul points us back and says, hey, remember what you were like? You needed the cross of Christ too. 
So that's why he says in verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, so we see that our salvation that you own is rooted in a historic event. He's looking back at a past tense. It's rooted, but when it arrived, past tense, two things happened. We see specifically, we see the nature of God arrived. The first one, his kindness, and the second one, his love. Those two natures of God appeared on the scene and made us radically different from the way we were solely because of the love of Christ. It appears on the scene in the midst of the cross. And I want to use a very specific word to help you understand this. We use it a lot in American society today. The word is philanthropy. And when we use the word philanthropy, we think of someone who set up a foundation or someone who's very generous with their funds, a philanthropist. But God originated this word philanthropy. It's pronounced in Greek philanthropia. And this is what it means. It's two words put together. A compound of phileo, to have affection for, and anthropos, man or mankind, and refers to compassion, eagerness to deliver someone from pain, trouble, or danger. It involves church way more than emotion. Philanthropia is not just an affection. It's a need to rescue. I can give you an example of this in the New Testament. You remember when Paul finished writing some of his books, he was under arrest by Rome again. He's put back on another ship, sails across the Mediterranean, and a huge storm erupts. And the ship is shipwrecked. It's destroyed. And they're washed up on the shore of an island called Malta. On this island of Malta, Paul experienced philanthropia. Let me show it to you on the screen. Acts 28.2. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, philanthropia. For because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. So this philanthropia, which is part of God's nature is to rescue mankind and to bring them in, give them shelter. You picture these guys shipwrecked on the island, sitting on the shore in the rain with a fire, huddled around, and the natives come up and care for them. It's a picture of your God. So the epiphanao that we talked about last week, when God burst on the scene at the cross and showed his love upon mankind, this light that was bursting, that's this. This epiphanao is the philanthropia. God's love to rescue. So it's at the cross we see his bursting first. And we need to remember, that's what Paul's saying, the source of our change, the way you were and the way you are now, the source of it, it's completely rooted in the cross. God's love in which he reached across this chasm and saved you. May we never forget that. It's not through our works. That's why he says this in verse 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So you understand really clearly, it's nothing that you did. You get no merit. You get no gold star. You just received it. You accepted it. You recognized who Jesus was and said, I'm in. Now how foolish mankind is to think they can earn their way to God. I bet that I go to a whole lot more funerals than any of you just by the nature of what I do. And invariably, at almost every funeral I go to, some well-meaning individual comes up to me and says, well, 
she's in a better place. She deserved to be there. She did so many good things with her life. She really earned her way. I hear that constantly. Have you heard that from people? They were a good person. That doesn't do it. Scripture says we didn't do it. He saved us not by the basis of anything that we have done in righteousness, but by the merits of Christ alone. So herein lies, church, the great distinction between what you know to be true and what the world believes. The world believes they can earn their way to God in righteousness. You understand through the clarity of Scripture, you can't earn it. You can't do anything. So this very complicated phrase is used here, the washing of regeneration and renewing. First of all, this washing is really kind of a cool picture in Greek. It means to take a bath. You're literally submersed. So just picture a big tub and you're hunkered down and then when you're in the tub and you're warm, you plug your nose and you put your head underwater too. It's a complete washing. Now the temptation is to think that this is, this is baptism that he's talking about. No, this is pictured in baptism because we just looked at the context and the context said, it's not by works, you can't do anything. So baptism is a picture of it. But what it literally is, it's a It's an instantaneous change that takes place when you pray to receive Christ. What you're about to see is what happens when someone says, I want to name the name of Jesus Christ. I want to follow Jesus with my life. And this description here, the washing of regeneration and renewing is what happens in someone's body, what happens in their soul, what happens in their life when they say, I want this change. So the word that's used here is a compound word, palingenesia. And I want you to see the way that it's put together. First of all, palin or palin and genesis. Palingenesia means literally a spiritual renovation, a complete remaking. Palin meaning it comes from above and genesis meaning brand new beginning. So it's not a old nature altered. It's a complete rebirth, a complete remaking from above. Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a man is born of the water and of the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So Nicodemus was trying to understand this, and Jesus gave him explanations how this regeneration works. He talked to him about how a man had to be washed, and Nicodemus had all those questions. Regeneration is literally the impartation of a new life. It's Genesis 126 all over again. God said, let us bara man. Let us create. It's a new creation. And that's emphasized again in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You get a completely new start. It's the greatest deal in the world. You get to shut the old things out and begin completely new again. The palingenesia is followed up by renewal. The word renewal comes right out of Romans 12.2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you get the complete new beginning again, and then the Holy Spirit invades your life, and your mind is renewed. It's transformed. It's a continuing process, and it goes over and over again. It's God's Spirit working on you. So, so we get this down really clear because this is a really important passage. You got any friends that are wondering, how does this thing take place? How does this born-again thing work? 
You take them to Titus 3, 4 through 7 and show them this. Because when regeneration and renewal comes together, you've got two terms that restore an individual back to fellowship with God. So they're back in the right place. First, salvation is not by works. This is why I want to be really clear. I might have put this in your notes. I don't remember. Salvation is not by works, whether religious or moral social. Salvation is based on the mercy of God alone. Three, salvation is an accomplished fact. He saved us. It's done. You just have to receive it. Fourth, means of salvation is explained by the washing of the regeneration. How the Spirit cleanses you, gives you a bath, makes you a brand new start, and you get Genesis all over again in your life. It's the regeneration. So verse 6 begins to end it this way. Whom he poured out upon us, speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Exactly what was poured out on us. This word that's used, poured, means to gush. You ever had anybody gush upon you? God gushed something upon us. We're told earlier in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit, when it arrived in Acts chapter 2, was just poured out upon the church. Well, that was the first arrival, the Holy Spirit's presence upon the church. But everyone who names the name of Christ at the point of salvation is infused with the Holy Spirit. We see this referred to specifically what this means to have something poured out upon us in Romans 5. Look with me on the screen, Romans 5, 5. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What is that love of God? We just saw it in verse 4, didn't we? His love for mankind appeared, in verse 4 it says this, the philanthropia, that desire to rescue. Remember the guys on the island? They're rescuing Paul. So that's the love of God that's being poured out upon you so that you would have the same desire to rescue, to see all those other people on the island out there that don't know this and you want to share this with them. So God poured his spirit up on you so that you would feel that desire to rescue also, this philanthropia. Verse 7 says this, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So all of our past sin brought guilt and condemnation, right? But when we discover Jesus Christ, it brings this justification. It's a legal term. It's a courtroom term. Look with me on the screen for justification. Dikaio, to render or regard as just or innocent, free. It literally means this, to stand before a judge in a court of law and have the judge say, acquitted, no guilt, free in Christ. That's what you're told here. Because Jesus paid for your sins, justice is fully satisfied. You don't have to do anything. You're innocent, you're free. So as a result of that, you're heirs according to the hope. That's the last part of the verse. You ever inherited anything? When you inherit something, you usually get gifts, right? So we inherited these couple gifts, two of them specifically, when we got the Holy Spirit at eternal life. It says the gift of the Spirit clearly is proof of salvation. It's God's down payment. God sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Look at me up on the screen, Romans 8.16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And the other gift, the other second part of that is we get empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk the walk. We don't have to do this on our own. We can't submit to the authorities over us on our own. We can't be gentle and kind and peaceable on our own. It requires the Holy Spirit working upon us. So all this brings confidence, church, that we get to inherit this eternal life that's promised to us. So here's the last verse, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. This is trustworthy, Titus. You can stamp it and seal it. I take the whole thing together as a whole, all of verses 4 through 7. Let me read this to you again. This is what we're told is trustworthy. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's what's worthy of approval. You can take that to the bank. It's all done for you. So concerning these things, speak confidently. What things? All those things we just read. You can speak confidently about those. So who's he supposed to do this? For me, I'm supposed to say this to you as a pastor of the church. For you, you're supposed to encourage each other. We're reminded of this. Those who believed in God, remind them of what? Here's a reminder for you. I found six of them. Remember your responsibility to submit to authority. Remember your former condition as unbelievers. Remember, without the grace of God, you'd still be lost. Remember the amazing gift of salvation. Remember, you've been cleansed in a regeneration. You've been renewed through the power of the Holy Spirit. And remember, you've been called to be His witnesses. So I'm familiar with the story. I'm going to end it this way. Man, back in the time um, which the church was being persecuted in Yugoslavia, I don't know if you knew that, but it wasn't that many years ago that the church in Yugoslavia, the, the true church, was under oppression, not only by the government, but by the organized church. And when people would not conform to the organized church, do the things the organized church told the church believers, house churches to do, they got nasty with them. There's a, an individual, he's an evangelist, his name is Yaakov. This is a true story coming out of Yugoslavia. During this period of time, Yaakov watched what happened to his country. He became a believer, a true believer in Jesus Christ. And when the regime toppled and the word of Jesus Christ began to spread throughout Yugoslavia, salvation in Christ alone, Yaakov decided to go from village to village within his region sharing the message of Jesus Christ. Yaakov came to one particular village and he came across an elderly man who was in his 80s. His name was Simmerman. And Simmerman, he thought, would be an individual whom he could convince to come to salvation in Christ. So Yaakov comes into Simmerman's house, sits down with him and says, Simmerman, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus Christ. I'd like to explain to you how you can have salvation. Yaakov, you stop right there. I want nothing to do with your Jesus. Simmerman, why would you want not to have me here in your home to talk to you about these things? Yaakov, you know what that church did 
to our people and how they oppressed us. My son was killed by those people. My nephew was tortured and killed by those people. I want nothing to do with your Jesus. Yaakov looked at Simmerman in the eye and thought, how in the world can I help this man understand that that is not the Jesus of the Bible? Those individuals who came to him were cloaked as though they were sheep, but they were really wolves. So as he talked to Simmerman, he thought, there's got to be a way to help him. Simmerman said, Yaakov, I want you to leave my house now. Yaakov said, Simmerman, may, may I ask you a question first? He said, go ahead. Simmerman, imagine that if I snuck in your house and I grabbed your coat and I put your coat on and I ran down the corner to the bank and I robbed the bank. But before the police could arrive, I escaped. And the only thing they saw was me disappearing around the corner wearing your cloak. And they recognized that coat. They knew that it was you. And they come knocking on your door saying, Simmerman, you're under arrest. What would you say to them? I would say, I'm not guilty. And they would say, Simmerman, but we saw you in your coat. And he would say, that was not my coat. Someone else was wearing it. And he stopped mid-sentence realizing what Yaakov was doing to him. Yaakov, I do not like your analogy. Leave my house. Weeks turned into months with Yaakov coming back to the village, witnessing to the people of the village, working with them on their farms, helping them with their mechanical needs. All the time, Simmerman was watching this. One day, this aged man, mid-80s, comes to his cornfield watches Yaakov walking by, gets on his knees with tears streaming down his face and says, Yaakov, I need to know how to receive this Jesus you're talking about. My heart is ready. Yaakov led him into faith, showed him how he can receive forgiveness of sins. Simmerman stood up, his face just soiled with the dirt and the tears running down, spun Yaakov around and said, Yaakov, Thank you for being in my life and bringing me this gift. Putting his arm around Yaakov, he pointed to the sky and he said, you wear his coat well. He got it. It clicked because he became part of the village. He understood what it meant to reach this man right where his needs were at. That's what you're called to do, church, in Titus chapter 3 to reach around them in love, serve them, meet their needs, not antagonistically. According to what we've seen, we're just like them. But the difference is we've been saved. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, I'm excited for what's going to happen here on Wednesday with uh, the two services coming together and, and the opportunity to eat together and to praise you. But beyond that, Father, I ask that you would use as, as an opportunity for us to bring our friends who don't know you or who may not have a relationship with you at all to come and find out that Christians aren't that bad. But we want them to experience it in a way that is just filled with your love, Father, with your philanthropia. God, we, myself, I desire to be the one who wears that coat well, just like Yaakov did. I ask for our church and for myself that we would be seen by our friends, by our coworkers, by fellow students at school as individuals who represent the kingdom 
well. And that requires your Holy Spirit. So God, work through us, go before us. Give us the boldness necessary to name the name of Christ with confidence in our community. By that, Father, we may see this community transformed. And perhaps, God, in one day, we'll be wondering what happened to all the parking spaces here. Do your work, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you have an excellent week.